Business Bros is your show, where small business professionals just like you come to tell their stories. This podcast is for those who understand the number one rule in business, which is to be of service to others. Learn how today's professionals generate leads, what's working on social media, what's hot and what's not, straight from the mouths of those who are out there doing the real work. And now let's welcome your hosts, Hernan Cias, the real estate bro with eXp Realty, the cloud-based brokerage where top producers reign, and James Cias, the insurance bro with Pipeline Insurance, making sure you are covered because there's a lot riding out there. And now here are the business bros. Welcome to another episode of Business Bros. We all are right, all right. We are ready to rock and roll today. All right, so we're in the offices of Mr. Andy Cook, uh, family law attorney. All right, that's correct. And uh, first of all, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Taking time out of your busy day to uh, jump on a show with two dudes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we want to give a shout out to Mr. Ryan Lipsy because you came highly recommended from from Ryan. He said uh, you're a great guy, and I should definitely get you on the show and talk to you about what it is that you do. So shout out to Ryan. You got anything to say, Mr. Mr. Lipsy? Well, um, I haven't seen him for a while, but uh, he is a good person, and uh, I send him my best regards. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, All I'm, right. just, I'm just curious. Uh, when did you meet Ryan, and how long have you known him? Um, I would say I've known him for about two years. Um approximately that would be my best estimate two years yeah i mean ryan has been uh one of our great supporters since uh, since we started doing a podcast back in july uh he's helped us reach out to a number of people and so you know we're thankful for him and then thank you again for your for being on the show so let's get this thing rock and roll are you ready andy i certainly am all right so andy tell me a little bit about uh what you do Well, I'm a certified family law specialist, so what that means is I do family law. Um, I practice in that area exclusively. Uh, Family law means uh, divorce and the issues that are part of divorce cases like child custody, child support, um, spousal support, property division, if appropriate, handling issues of domestic violence, and then Uh, I also handle post-divorce matters, which sometimes arise because there's a need to modify orders regarding uh, child custody or spousal support or child support. And then um, a number of other issues like paternity cases, which are cases where uh, there are children, but the mother and father were never married. So if you add those areas up, that pretty much uh, is close to 95 to 98 percent of what family law encompasses. For me, I also do prenuptial agreements. So you do the before the marriage, during the marriage, and after the marriage. <laughs> well, that's one way to look at it. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, that's that's uh, that's some. I mean, I'd imagine you stay busy. I heard a statistic somewhere. I don't know how true it is, but. Uh, Half the time when you go into a marriage, you're going to end up uh, meeting a divorce attorney. Well, I've heard that, too. I'm not sure if it's true or where those statistics come from or whether it's uh, just California or the entire country or the entire world. But it is um, a constant factor in in life. Um, It's um, one of the more stressful things that people uh, who experience it have to experience it along with I think the other two were, you know, death and of a loved one or, uh, and and losing a job, which can also be uh, very stressful. 
So it, it is a, um, something that is a very important part of people's lives. And would you say that uh, a lot of these things come hand in hand? Like, I, I mean, God forbid death of a child or, or death of a, of a close family member or being in a position where finances become an issue. Those types of situations, stressful as they are, tend to lead to separation of, of marriages from time to time or, or very often in your case. Would you, would you agree or is it a little bit different? What, what's your experience? No, I think that those factors do play a role. Um, they don't explain every divorce, um, but they explain, you know, a good percentage of them. Um, you know, fortunately, we don't have a lot of cases where someone has lost a child, but I've had some of them and that can um, cause the marriage itself to fall apart. Um, the loss of another loved one, um, that's probably less common. In other words, if someone dies of old age, that doesn't usually prompt a divorce, although I suppose mm -hmm. it could. But there's a multitude of reasons um, in California, as is the case in most states, you can get divorced for any reason, and only one person has to uh, want one out. That's yeah. correct. Mm -hmm. And so um, in California, the standard is irreconcilable differences, which is a vague term, but it's deliberately uh, vague because um, the courts are generally not concerned with why the marriage has broken apart, although sometimes that does sort of provide the answer to why the parties are arguing about some other issues. Uh, but in general, you can get divorced for whatever reason or really no good reason. Um, and once the people or at least one of the parties decides to get divorced, that's when I get involved unless I was there to do a prenuptial agreement. Yeah, so if you were there ahead of time, they're, of course, going to call you when it's time to get over with because they're going to want to execute this this prenuptial plan. Well, actually, though, if uh, I do a prenuptial agreement, I can only represent uh, one of the parties um, in the drafting of the prenuptial agreement. And then um, I probably can't serve as a witness in any subsequent divorce case because of the general ban on uh, a, a lawyer also being a witness in in court. I mean, it's not in in the same case that the lawyer is providing representation. Um, it can happen in certain cases, but in a prenuptial agreement, um, you can bet that um, it's not a good idea for the lawyer to both be the drafter uh, of the prenuptial agreement and a uh, witness in the trial. Uh, and, and let me just expand, expound upon that a little bit, because if there is a divorce, then one of the issues in the divorce is going to be whether or not the prenuptial agreement was valid. And the lawyer may have information about um, whether or not the parties or at least one of the parties understood the agreement, what the terms were in terms of what time of day it was signed and under what type of pressure. And so that's fine. The lawyer can certainly testify in that regard. But then for that lawyer also to not just testify, but also be that lawyer's 
uh, that client's lawyer at that time. That's awkward, and and so generally I wouldn't do that. That's kind of that's kind of funny actually. So. Uh, coming from a divorce attorney, you don't want to put yourself in a precarious situation. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think in any in any case where the lawyer is a witness, it's just not a great idea going forward for that lawyer to also be the lawyer in the case in which the lawyer is going to be a witness. It's allowed in certain cases, especially if the client gives uh, a certain type of consent. Um, I, I don't have the exact language uh, memorized, but um, a lawyer, any lawyer, should know about that problem or that issue and look seriously at it before uh, testifying um, as a witness in, in the case that the lawyer is providing services in. All right. Let's get into some nitty gritties. Um, common misconceptions, for example. So a common misconception is that when a husband and wife split up, that the guy always gets screwed. Is that usually the case? No, it's probably the case maybe 50% of the time, and uh, I'm not sure if that would be the right way to describe the situation. Uh, Historically, um, men made more money than women, and so when it came time to provide support, um, the man would be paying... um, support to the woman, uh, not just because the man was making more money, but because traditionally uh, women, um, either just because of general beliefs or because of the fact that they weren't in the workplace to the extent that they are now, would be more likely to get custody as well. So if you have custody and you are the lower earner, um, that means that you are more likely to receive support than have to pay support. But the reality is, is that um, men receive spousal support now if they're if if they are the low earner and the the spouse makes significantly uh, more money and uh, lots of times um, men get custody and in fact it's mandated that they get custody um, in cases involving domestic violence uh, perpetrated by the other party unless the other party can prove that that law should not apply. So uh, in general, um, to get back to your original question, no, uh, a person may not like the outcome. And if that person's a man, that person may start telling friends that uh, he didn't do very well because of his gender, but that's not the way it works, and most judges don't think that way. All right. So, so uh, if we're if we're going through a separation, does it mean that because mom uh, mom's a mom, is she more likely to get custody? No, as I said, um, the the court really uh, has to look at what's in the best interests of the children. And so a lot of it is just based on timing. Um, If the parties have been separated for a while, that is uh, living apart, living apart, um, a court will look very closely at the status quo. That is, what is the arrangement from the time that the parties stopped living together until the time of the court hearing. And if one party has the the child or the children significantly more, then that person has an advantage over the other party, regardless of whether that person is a man or a woman. Um, the other thing is that 
yes, frequent and continuing contacts, uh, which is what the family code describes that scenario as. In other words, you look at the status quo, but you also look at the goal of uh, both parents having frequent contacts with the child or the children. The number one factor is the safety of the child. So any mm -hmm. issues regarding um, abuse of alcohol or use of illegal drugs uh, sort of trumps everything else, as does any history of domestic violence, either against the child or between the two parents. So you've got to get past that issue. And once you do, then you just look at the overall best interest, frequent and continuing contacts, and uh, the issue of what the status quo is. All right, next toughie question. You ready? So another slang thing that I've heard all the time is it's cheaper to keep her or it's cheaper to keep them. So that stems from the whole, you know, who gets to pay alimony and who doesn't get to pay alimony, who gets to receive it, who gets to pay child custody. Um, assuming all, uh, assuming, you know, that, uh, that the spouse stayed at home, regardless of gender, just spouse stayed at home to take care of the child. Does that automatically mean that that spouse is going to end up receiving alimony? No, because there could be a number of reasons uh, not to award spousal support, which is used uh, um, the same way that we use the word alimony. Uh, first of all, if, if the, uh, the, the person who works outside of the home um, does not make a lot of money, then there may not be enough money to award spousal support. Um, I'm assuming in this case that there are children involved. Um, and or if the marriage was very short, then even if spousal support is awarded, it's going to be for a very short, short, period, of short period of time. So you've got to look at a number of factors in terms of uh, the argument that it's cheaper to keep the person than not. Um, you know, you do have to look at that when deciding to get a divorce. Um, it's it doesn't make people rich. You know, there's certain types of uh, lawsuits outside of family law where, at the end of the day, you might get a big payout, um, and um, usually those cases involve some type of harm, like wrongful termination or personal injury. Uh, but my point is, is that rarely in family court do you walk out of there feeling like uh, you just made a million dollars because you don't. And so you need to think carefully uh, before you get married. And then once you do get married about getting divorced. So I don't decide for people whether they should get divorced or not. That's up to them. But once they do make that decision, that's sort of when uh, I come in when, you to, step in. when I step in. So um, I, I'm always reminded of a, of a, episode. I, I hate to do this on a legal interview like this, but I think it was Inside Edition a number of years ago. Um, and, and the reason I make this point is it's not just the, the people who don't have a lot of money who suffer through a divorce, but uh, wealthy people as well. Um, the, they were doing a story on uh, the cast of uh, All in the Family, and they were interviewing um, the son. I guess that's Rob Reiner, uh, not Carl Reiner, who's mm -hmm. the dad. Uh, and they asked him because at a certain point um, in the uh, in the production of the show, he left the show. He was written out of the cast at his own request. 
and they asked him why he was doing it and he said it's a good question i was going through a divorce and so i could have used the money and so it just shows you that even somebody who is in hollywood and is working in the you know in the entertainment industry and presumably has a lot of money even for them you know if they're going through a divorce you know it is going to pinch a little bit and um it's all relative if you make less money you may have to pay less money but that's still a lot of money for that person yeah uh so um so so it, it is not a cheap thing to do and something that people need to think carefully about well let's stick to the uh celebrity status so recently in the news we had jeff bezos owner of amazon Probably the it's said to be probably the most expensive divorce that's going to be happening in that situation. And we live in a community property state of California. So when it comes to, you know, separating assets, is there like a time frame? Is there like, a, you know, does a prenup help us separate things or is it from the moment we get married, everything we have uh, growing from that point is is community property? How does that work? Well, it is true that a prenuptial agreement can override California's community property law. And by the way, uh, there are not about nine states in the United States mm-hmm. that are community property states, and we're one of them. So uh, the way it works is that a community property is property that is acquired by a married person or by married people um, while uh, they are living in California. Um, and they acquire that property um, after the date of marriage and before the date of separation. And there's certain exceptions, but that's the, that's the general rule. One of the exceptions, for example, is if you acquire an inheritance during marriage, that's separate property. So there are some exceptions. Now, if you don't like that concept, you can enter into a prenuptial agreement. In fact, Uh, really the two reasons that people go into prenuptial agreements, number one is they don't like the rules of community property, and so uh, they don't want that to apply. And number two uh, is to eliminate the possibility of ever having to pay spousal support. You you cannot eliminate the possibility of having to pay child Child support support, because the the child is a minor. You're you're looking in the interest of the child. Right, and the same thing with custody. You can't say, if we get divorced, I'm going to get every Wednesday and every Friday. That would not fly with with a court when it came time to enforce the prenuptial agreement. But uh, so basically you have to look at when do they get married, and then when do they separate? Not when do they get divorced, but when do they separate? And if the uh, if the asset or the debt uh, was either acquired or incurred between those two times, there's a very strong possibility, and in fact a probability, that it's going to be deemed community property. And so that that is how community property in general works. And so uh, if you're if you have a job, let's say, and you're engaged to get married, and a week before you get married, you get your paycheck, that's your separate property. But then the next time you get paid, assuming, married. You, yeah, assuming you get paid, let's say, every other week, that's community property. And then if you separate uh, on a Friday, but you got paid on a Wednesday, that's community property. But then when you get paid the, the next, next time, time, it goes back to being separate, separate. property. <laughs> but 
what what happens is is that it's not that this money just accumulates because you both get community property and you spend it during the marriage so um, you have to look at that as well. Oh, that's great because that was one of our questions from uh, from one of our Facebook uh, fans. Uh, he was asking about you know when when it comes time to get a divorce and you have uh, acquired debts, what's the best way to minimize damage? And I think the way you're answering that is you get a prenup, so you can decide ahead of time how debts and assets will be allocated upon a divorce. Well, that yes, that's one way to do it. Although I, my guess would be that most people don't get prenuptial agreements. Um, so you have to look at what does happen with debt when people do get divorced. And again, it's like community property assets, except it's community property debt. And so the debt has to be uh, evenly divided. So we've talked a little bit about how to define community property, but then I guess the other issue is what do you do with that community property? And the answer is you divide it evenly. And the judge basically has two choices. The judge can divide things up by saying, okay, you get this, but the other party is going to get that, or we're going to split this in half. Um, You can do that with money accounts. Like if there's $500 in the bank, the judge can say you each get $250. Uh, but you can't do that with the house. You can't, you know, you chop the house. You can't chop the house in half. Uh, and so uh, you offset things. You say, all right, you get the house, which has so much inequity, uh, but I'm going to give the other person all this other stuff to make up for the fact that he or she is not getting the house. Uh, you mentioned selling the house. That 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 sometimes uh, is what happens as well, um, and they, the parties could split the proceeds. Um, so there's a number of ways to divide community property equally. Um, sometimes, for example, if there's debt and there's um, and there's assets, you know, the the judge can award the same person both an asset and a debt because they'll it's a wash yeah yeah. Uh, so that can happen too there are a lot of ways that it can happen and it's it's more complicated than we could possibly oh yeah because today the the, uh, scenarios are endless at that point right i was i was about to actually throw a scenario at you so this is kind of a weird one uh what if someone had people are married two people are married and both their names are on the title of a car but the loan is only in one person's name. How does that work for community property? Well, uh, if the if the if the vehicle was acquired during marriage, which is sort of the way I always started, mm-hmm. that's in in most respects that's going to be more important than than title, um, at least under the recent um, cases interpreting community property. Uh, if it's so, let's assume that it's community property. Um, you go with the fact that it was acquired during the marriage, and under your scenario, in addition, both people are on the title, on the on the deed to the car, uh, or on the title paperwork to the car. So it it is community it's community, it's community property, um, and so the fact that the loan may only be in one person's name is not going to affect what the judge is going to do with respect to the car or how the car is valued. But if the car is awarded to the person who whose name is on the loan, or um, we'll, we'll start with that yeah. scenario first, then that person is going to have to hold harmless the person who does not get the car. 
And if for some reason the car were, be, were to be awarded to the person who's not on uh, the loan, then as a condition of that person getting the car, that person might need to refinance the vehicle the so, so that the person who's on the loan is taken off the loan and the other person is put on a new loan for the car. That makes sense. And that has to be it's pretty much negotiated between attorneys and finalized by a judge. Well, yes, uh, it, it, if it's negotiated by the attorneys, the judge will usually, but not always, just sign off on it. Uh, the, the judges um, are busy and they can't second guess every, <laughs> everything, yeah. everything and say, what would I do if I were one of the attorneys or one of the parties? If the parties and their attorneys cannot work something out, then the judge has to decide it. But usually on some of the smaller cases or on some of the smaller issues like cars, um, the parties are able to work it out ahead of time, especially if they have attorneys. In divorce cases, unlike uh, civil cases or criminal cases, you, you sometimes can get a judgment or an agreement on some issues, but then go to trial on those issues that you couldn't agree mm-hmm. on. It's not all or nothing. Okay. Okay. Let's uh, let's go to uh, children in this case. Um, we're told that uh, sometimes life insurance policies are enacted or, or required when we have a divorce case that has some sort of child support or some sort of you know long term care type uh, situation. Is that something that's usually mandated by the court that happens to ensure that the financial you know aspect for the child is taken care of? Well, um, I, I'm not going to say that courts will usually order somebody to acquire insurance that they never had to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, As a practical matter, uh, a person uh, may not qualify for life insurance, especially Mm -hmm. if the health is a little bit questionable um, or the premiums might be very high. But you're more likely to see it when the parties negotiate a settlement and they might say, uh, okay, uh, you know, you're going to be paying me support, but if you die, then I don't get the support, so I want to have a life insurance. It's very common in the military um, for a number of reasons. One, there's the risk that service members undertake, but secondly, they tend to be younger, and so, uh, and the children tend to be younger, so what's at risk is far greater than two people in their 80s who get divorced where the life expectancy right. isn't going to be as long. But you do see that issue of um, a stipulated judgment uh, requiring somebody to maintain or get life insurance regardless of whether you're talking about child support or spousal support or both. Oh, okay, cool. Because I want to make sure. Yeah, I mean, we hear the the thing about law is everybody watches these shows on TV and they see like the Judge Judy's and they think, you know, oh, that's easy. I can be an attorney myself. So when they it's time to get, you know, separation, they tend to come to some sort of written agreement between the two of them. And then they file their, you know, paperwork and then they assume everything's going to go hunky dory down the road is you know what would you advise to people who end up going that route who just come up with an agreement between the two of them and sign it well i i don't know that that would really be enforceable um in california and again i wouldn't be surprised if there weren't similar rules in other states but in california in order to get a divorce 
um, especially if it's settled outside of court, each party has to complete um, what's called a declaration of disclosure, which is, which is a revelation of their assets and their debts. And you would think that if people are married, they would know everything there is to know about the <laughs> other side. But, but and, and in certain cases they do, but in many cases they don't. And so um, anything that's written out on a sheet of paper or on the back of a napkin, it, it, that's not going to be enforceable. You know, I can't be absolutely certain that every judge would agree with this, but it's not going to be enforceable, um, certainly at the moment it's written, because the court doesn't even have jurisdiction yet. Someone's got to file for divorce, mm -hmm. and then even after the filing, there has to be these exchanges of declarations of disclosure, and you have to file with the court proof that you've complied with the declaration of disclosure requirement. And only after then uh, can you enter into a binding judgment, and even then it's got to be written up in a way that uh, reflects a certain amount of clarity. I, I mean, a handwritten agreement or something written on a yellow sheet just isn't going to do. I would also say that people just shouldn't do that in general because you should talk to a lawyer first because it's very hard to spot issues that you don't know exist in in the first instance. So that 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 goes with just about any area of the law. I mean, for example, um, in criminal law, uh, you know, a person might say, well, look, I, I didn't do the crime. I, I'm innocent. I'm going to talk to the police. What do I have to hide? And that might seem to be perfectly common sense, but any good criminal defense attorney will say, you know, even though you don't have anything to hide, you don't have anything to gain by talking. And if you do say something that's a little inconsistent, you might uh, cause suspicion about yourself. So don't do it. And the person may not have thought about that unless he or she spoke to an attorney. Well, the same thing works in family law. Um, you can certainly talk to your spouse about some general goals, um, you know, in terms of custody. But in general, uh, you shouldn't commit yourself to any specific agreement. And then, as I said, even if you did do that, um, it may not be enforceable anyway. Yeah, so I'm thinking, let's say you do come to an agreement and you both agree. Of course, you're coming to this agreement like you did when you got married and you're assuming that it's going to work out just like you assumed it was going to work out when you got married. And then a few years down the road, you're, you didn't, you, you figured out that, you know, your agreement didn't work out. So what's to say this, this post-nuptial agreement won't work out? then one spouse can come back and say, hey, I want more or I want something else and then see an attorney and it could just all be, you know, it could be more expensive if you didn't do the attorney route the first time. Right. I mean, so again, there's nothing wrong with reaching an agreement. You can hire an attorney and say, this is what we have agreed to. The attorney can write all of that down. And then um, as the case progresses, the attorney can contact the other attorney and say, it's my understanding that the parties have agreed to this and to that, and the case can go on that way. So we're not here as family law attorneys to create rifts or problems when they don't exist. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes people will agree to something and they won't realize uh, how deep a hole they're digging for themselves <clears throat> Excuse me. And so um, you just have to be careful. But as I said, I think 
you know, you shouldn't be afraid to talk to your spouse unless there's a domestic violence situation um, because, you know, talking does lead to agreements and agreements are always better than uh, fighting it out in court. You should still talk to an attorney and get legal advice, but if that doesn't mean that you need to uh, make it a, a replay of World War Two. Right. <laughs> we got time for just one more question, and I'm going to throw this one at you really quickly here. How does infidelity affect stuff like community property, alimony, child support, etc., or does it? Well, it generally does not. Um, so there, there's a couple of issues there. First of all, as, as I said earlier, the standard for getting a divorce is irreconcilable differences. And it doesn't matter whether those irreconcilable differences are due to alcoholism, um, financial pressure, depression, or infidelity, or any other uh, number of reasons. Um, if the parties have no children, um, it's even less important because um, for the obvious reason that if there are children and if the children are, are witnesses to the infidelity in a somewhat graphic way and if the children are young, I mean, when you add all that together, I can't say that it never plays a role ever, ever, but generally it does not because uh, first of all, uh, if the children don't find out about it, then it's not really a, a factor. Really. If there are no children, um, then again, it doesn't really play a role in the division of property or spousal support um, or how you define community property. Um, the, the one time that it might be a factor if there are no children is if uh, one of the, the party who's involved in the adulterous relationship is funneling money or paying for mm -hmm. um, the, we'll say, the third adult's um, lifestyle. Uh, lifestyle, whether it be rent or, or things like that. But, it, but it's, it's, a, it's a difficult call. If, if uh, for example, uh, we'll just call it spouse one is having an extramarital affair, and that affair uh, besides the, the sexual nature, uh, which doesn't really generate, you know, a dollar cost, uh, they're, they're eating out at fancy restaurants, we'll, we'll say the most fancy restaurant in mm -hmm. San Diego. Um, do, you, do you say, okay, well, that uh, obligation, you know, you've breached your fiduciary duty, and, and we haven't talked about that today, but that's one of the consequences of being a financial uh, financially dishonest person. If you go out to an expensive restaurant, does that with with your um, with with the person you're seeing, does that count? Uh, and and I'm not sure that it does because if you went out with your brother to the most expensive restaurant and ordered food and drinks that you really probably couldn't afford, that's that's, that, that's choice, fine. Yeah. It's it's a choice, and you're not going to be punished for it. Where where it would play a role though is you know the 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 spouse is writing a check for that person to live in an apartment someplace else uh, because that's clearly something that the that the cheating spouse is not um, benefiting benefiting from and the community is not benefiting from and it's simply being written to someone who's the person's not married to but the actual act of the sex is not relevant. Um, especially when there's no children 
and unless you're diverting funds to pay for the the new uh, significant other so in general uh, it doesn't uh, it, it's not a factor well all I can say is I learned a lot today put it ditto put, this is probably one of the most educational podcasts yeah. uh, so thank you very much for that mr. Andy Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I threw some myths at you. You helped me clarify them because, you know, there's always you always know people who are going through a situation. And uh, once one happens, you tend to know the other ones. And so now I know exactly where to refer them to. (laughs) Well, well, I appreciate that. And remember, don't just don't listen to your friends. Uh, Everyone's case is different. Mm -hmm. And if you are going to make that mistake, and listen to your friends and make sure they're California friends because obviously the law is different in other states and certainly in other countries. I like that. If you're going to make that mistake. Yeah, don't make the mistake to begin with. Don't. I mean, you can talk to, you know, misery enjoys company and you can sort of commiserate together, but don't assume that uh, what's going to happen in one case is going to happen in another. Great, assum- great, great, you know, what, what did we say about assumptions? They make an ass out of you and me. So, yeah, we kind of did that today a little yeah, bit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mr. Cook, thank you for taking the time to be on the co- podcast. I mean, it definitely, we learned a ton. And, uh, you know, I, I work with a lot of real estate agents, and real estate agents have uh, roller coaster incomes. And when you have roller coaster incomes with married couples, they tend to be some problematic issues. So uh, if anybody needs your services, make sure they reach out. Do me a favor, Mr. Cook, point to the little screen right here, point down on your screen. Okay. That is your contact information. So if anybody's watching this uh, on on when we post it on Facebook, they can talk. They can contact you right there. Um, take a few the last little minute here. Talk to the camera. Let the people know how do they get a hold of you if uh, if they need your services. Well, the best way is to call at six one nine five one five ninety nine hundred. They can also. Uh, check us out and reach out to us on email at uh, acookjd at earthlink.net. Um, our uh, website is divorcesd.com. And I guess what I would say is besides the normal business hours that we keep, I'm one of those people who believes that I'm always on call. And so uh, when I travel or even when it's the weekend and I'm here in San Diego, I check voicemail periodically um, seven days a week, check email several times a day, even when I'm not in the office. So, uh, if you want to reach me, you'll be able to do so. Awesome. And then lastly, we always put our guests on the spot. Who do you think would be a great, uh, podcast guest who can share some information that you've worked with in the past in, uh, in business or, or in any type of industry? Well, that's that's a tough question. Uh, you may have finally uh, stumped me at at the very end. <laughs> um, you know, that's uh, I, I'm gonna maybe take a pass at that one just because uh, you're asking about a um, you know a specific business category and then who does the best job in that business category. Um, but um, you know. I, I come from a medical family. Uh, my father is a retired physician and my brother is a practicing physician. So I think if you, uh, if you got a good um, medical doctor, uh, an internist, uh, that would be a great person to talk to because 
Um, after all, if you can't live, then the divorce, the, the divorce probably doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> exactly. So let's go with a doctor. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. Then maybe I'll, uh, hit you up a little bit later. Maybe we can get your brother on the podcast. We'll see. Well, he's, uh, he's in New Hampshire, but you're certainly, uh, if you don't mind the cold, you can fly out there, fly out there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see about that one. Thanks again, Mr. Cook for, uh, coming on the podcast. We really appreciate your time. I know your time is valuable. You stay busy. Uh, being in a, a beautiful city with a lot of temptation. So I'm sure uh, your your calendar stays booked and I appreciate the time slot that you gave us. Thank you. All right. That's all we got for you guys today. If you guys want to reach out to Andy, his contact info is on the screen. If you guys want to be on the podcast, turn on at csverse.com. For all your insurance needs, james at csverse.com. Or you can follow us on our social media at Business Bros Pod. That's all we got for you guys today. Peace. Bye-bye. And we're out. And thanks again, Mr. Cook. Thank you for listening to the Business Bros Podcast. Are you interested in being on the show? Are you looking to sell your home or have a business that needs insurance? Reach out to the Business Bros via email, businessbros at csfirst.com right now or click on the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. And remember to subscribe and share the podcast with the business professionals who you think would benefit from the show.